following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officious dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to get a life, or at least to stand up for all life here on our Mother Earth with the Environmental As Anything show. Thank you for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to have your company. And I'm uh, looking forward to a jam-packed show full of uh, news, interviews and all the analysis that we could collect uh, for you on our planetary uh, survival. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Big, big, uh, big, big uh, show today. I've got, uh, as always, uh, I've got a report today from, the, from Brisbane. From on Monday, the uh, the Parliament fourteen went before the Brisbane Magistrates Court for the uh, terrible offence of having uh, uh, having spoke, stood up in the the, uh, the the public gallery of the Bris- of the Queensland Parliament, and uh, for three minutes uh, called for an end to uh, all coal and gas uh, development. Uh, we did a report uh, like uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about that. And uh, now we've got the actual outcome from that court date on Monday and a report with all of the sounds uh, of that event and speakers, etc. So that's something to look forward to. Then I'm going to have um, Aidan Ricketts, who is a renowned uh, local uh, activist and lawyer who is uh, an expert in, uh, in protest law and, uh, and the process of social justice movements and uh, he'll be joining us to talk about the situation for protest laws and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the legal situation for protesters uh, more specifically. Uh, so we'll be looking forward to uh, enjoying his expertise uh, very soon and also looking forward to, uh, to welcoming uh, Sue Higginson, MLC. And, of course, Sue is in there in the New South Wales Parliament Upper House representing our interests, and uh, she's been this week grilling the Premier, New South, Wemia, Pre- New South Wales Premier Minns, who's been dodging the questions of the climate targets of New South Wales. And uh, so we'll be uh, getting Sue in to clarify uh, what's actually happening in New South Wales uh, regarding our climate emergency response. Um, also coming up in the show uh, later on, I'll be uh, wrapping up the show with uh, Violet Coco, who's going to be uh, joining us to give us an update from the front lines. Uh, she's out there fighting the good fight for us all, with us all. Um, and uh, she was there in Brisbane just the other day and she's, I don't know exactly where she is today, but she'll be joining us from the fu- on the phone from wherever she is to talk us through some of the, uh, the actions that have been happening this week in her life and, uh, and in a, in a, for, for Austra- all Australians and what's coming up in the next week or two as well. I should also mention that, uh, that the, you, can str- you can download the podcast and listen to the podcast of the highlights of the show. Uh, the, we, I always get the original uh, interviews that I do or try to get the original interviews that, uh, that we do here on the show and put them up on the Environmental As Anything podcast. So anywhere that you go to search for uh, anything, you can type in Environmental As Anything podcast and you will find uh, us there. 
So please do that and subscribe to the podcast and share it around. It's good if we uh, if we are all sharing this. Uh, this is independent community media, and uh, if we share it around, then maybe we can have some positive impact on uh, on counterbalancing the the toxic capitalist media, which uh, is attempting to deceive and uh, and inveigle us into uh, their agenda. I wanted to start the show off. I haven't actually said thank you to the owners of the country where I live, work and play, which is the Bunjalung Nation. And, uh, and I thank the Widjawawaiable people of the Bunjalung Nation for their hospitality and their forbearance, their patience, while we uh, try to redress some of the injustices and damage done by uh, colonialism and capitalism to their country. It always was and always will be theirs. And uh, as it was never ceded, there is no treaty, there is no legal arrangement for the existence of this nation that we call Australia. We live in the most tenuous arrangements possible because of that. And uh, we thank the uh, the Bunjalung Nation and all of the uh, First Nations people of Australia for their their incredible patience with us while we uh, sort out uh, the business of reconciliation. Uh, So my respects to Elders past, present and emerging always. Also, I wanted to mention the uh, another land rights issue, another issue of injustice and uh, and genocide, uh, which has been going on for thousands of years now, uh, which uh, of course is the issue of Palestine. And uh, I wanted to say, just add my voice to the calls for peace in Palestine and, uh, and justice for, uh, for everybody who lives in uh, Israel and Palestine and uh, an end to the cycle of retribution uh, and violence, the the vengeance cycle, which uh, they seem to be in, and um, uh, you know, like I am appalled by personally by the, uh, the the acts of terror which have taken place recently, and uh, those, of course, include the acts of terror committed by the Hamas, and of course the acts of terror which have been ongoing uh, from the Israeli state. For well, since 1948, so um, you know it's a it's a uh, it's a dreadful and pointless uh, conflict. Uh, it it serves only the interests of the uh, the criminal and the corrupt, and uh, it's in, incumbent upon us all uh, to not pick sides, not pick winners, but to call for peace and justice. Uh, Worldwide, but especially in those places where peace and justice seems to be in abeyance. So, um, yes, my thoughts go to those people and my hopes for uh, a just solution and my horror at the fact that that justice and peace is, it seems to have been being wantonly destroyed by um, the most violent thugs on both sides of that conflict and leading to the, uh, the, 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 the deaths and the injuries and the, the dispossession of, uh, of all of those who are innocent of any uh, wrongdoing. Innocent or guilty uh, is a question for justice, not for vengeance. 
seeking vengeance in the case of injustice is only to perpetrate further injustice, in my humble opinion. The, the levels of reportage that we have uh, suffered under the capitalist media here in Australia uh, with regard to the, uh, the, the latest uh, wargasm in, in Israel slash Palestine um, has been embarrassing and, and uh, deplorable. And uh, I mean, I commend all of those uh, honest journalists who are doing good work in attempting to uh, honestly and accurately report uh, the the facts. Uh, but unfortunately, there are media proprietors who are the gatekeepers of these affairs who seem to stand between us and the truth. They want to keep our news limited. Anyway, enough on that for the time being. Thanks for tuning in to Environmental As Anything. I'm Sean O'Shaughnessy. My pleasure to be here with you today. Outside the Brisbane Magistrates Court on Monday, 23rd of October, a spirited community of supporters sang, chanted and gave speeches as they waited for the so-called Parliament 14 to have their day in court. After a year of delay, the group of climate activists fates up to three years of prison for three minutes of protest. For calling to an end to new coal and gas developments from the parliamentary gallery during question time, they were charged with disturbing the legislature. Monday's hearing was adjourned so that the magistrate could consider the legal issues around a law that has been described by some observers as archaic. As the climate defenders emerged from the court, they were greeted with enthusiastic cheers and chanting and their designated spokesperson gave a statement to the waiting media pack. Also, talk about why they're here. They're here 
um, because they're of variable ages, but they've got families, uh, children, grandchildren, or grandparents, and they're so concerned about the future of children and the future of everybody. They'd also like me to tell you that um, the climate is changing now. The climate catastrophe is already operating now. And what we ask for governments, what all climate activists are asking for governments, is to listen and take action. They can't continue to start exporting coal. Uh, the Queensland government, who we talk, uh, who was um, involved in this particular um, case, um, are continuing to open up new coal mines. Five new coal mines have been uh, opened up and approved this year. 2023. It is just not good enough. It's got to stop. We need to have both sides of this. The fossil fuel industry need to come to the table, along with all the people who are standing in uh, in support of climate justice. Spokesperson for the Environmental Defenders Office said the matter of the parliamentary protesters known collectively as the Brisbane 14 was heard briefly in the Brisbane Magistrates Court today. After a brief hearing, the 13 of the cases were adjourned for a mention in November, while one of the cases has been adjourned to an undetermined date for legal arguments about an apparent inconsistency in the Queensland Criminal Code. There is to be a legal argument over the validity of the substantive charge, section 56 of the Criminal Code, in light of section 717, which prevents the charging, further prosecution, continuation of prosecution or conviction for that substantive charge. system is broken and racked with deceit and it's not worth the cost of maintaining so it's time to step up and get out on the streets for the climate is a change now the scientists tell us beyond any doubt that we're threatened by bushfires, by heat, and by drought. And for many, the water will soon have run out. And hopes for the future are fading. But the quiet Australians are starting to shout for the climate is a change. Now here, Anastasia, the words that we say, there's 60 fires burning in Queensland today And you're making them worse when you give the okay To what fossil fuel miners are claiming Cause they're killing tomorrow by mining today For the climate is a change 
Okay. Um, can I get your full name and uh, your role in these events, please? Um, thanks, Sean. My name, full name's Diane Tucker, and I'm um, part of the Extinction Rebellion Parliament 14, who um, dropped some banners over the railing of Parliament House at the end of 2022. Yes, so you've been waiting a year, and here we are outside the Brisbane Magistrates Court, where you've just had your first hearing uh, on this. Um, uh, how are you feeling now, uh, post-hearing? Well, there's a lot of emotions. I, I feel pretty deflated on one level because we um, we believe that the whole um, there will be a summary hearing today and that the whole case could possibly be dealt with today. Um, so that's a real disappointment that it's been adjourned for a minimum of two weeks and we're not really sure what's going to happen next with it. Um, but it's been an amazing support experience as well. We've had people from right across the climate movement in Brisbane join us today and support us. It's been absolutely uplifting. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, and what what do you uh, do? You see this as being a part of a bigger picture uh, for protest in Australia? Absolutely. I think that our particular case has had a lot of attention. Like the media has been super interested in it. The community's maintained interest in it over almost 12 months. And I think um, it's because we represent the general population, I think. We're being described in the press as not your average protesters. We come from, we've got diverse ages. Most of us are actually older. Um, we come from a range of backgrounds, including the medical field, um, private business, architecture. So we represent people, the, the people that really care about the climate. And, and representing those people, uh, you, you are facing down uh, what, what's been described as an archaic law. What's, what, what's, what's, what do you, how do you feel about the, the legal response to your actions? It's been a surprise. I think it's been a surprise not just to us but to everyone. They're using a law that was last used in the time of Joe Bielke peterson in Queensland and anybody who's older than 20 remembers and knows what that meant, the most repressive state and totalitarian. We couldn't even have three people together on the street or it became an illegal protest. And so that's the type of law that's been dragged out and been used in our case. And even the police who served it on us didn't understand what it was that they were serving us with. Mm. So do you think this is a, a bit of a part of a trend towards more totalitarian uh, responses to, to peaceful protest? That's a really good question, absolutely. There's a real um, move across Australia and the world to um, react more punitively to silence activists um, and to treat us like organised criminals and terrorists even. And even the resources that are um, given to the police and to authorities to enforce, track down and punish us has been treated the same way. They've had enormous resources in some of the states. So yeah, definitely they don't want to hear our message. And I think the further we go into the climate crisis, the more we're going to see this. There's um, a concept in psychology called the extinction burst. And this is a really well-known um, behavior that when an animal is at a point where their behavior is about to be extinguished, if they're being stopped doing what they're doing, they actually increase the behaviour for a while before they give up. And I think that's what we're seeing here, is that there'll be more effort by the fossil fuel industries and those with vested interests to silence us. 
So that's what we expect to see from uh, from those driving us towards extinction. What about yourself and those who are, who are, who are rebelling against extinction? What, what's next for, for you here in Brisbane and what do you think around the country? Well, we've got to get through this court case, of course. Um, we're not going to stop doing what we're doing. Um, we're, we're totally, all of us are totally committed to continuing to try and do what we can to halt this slide off the edge of the cliff, you know. We, we've passed so many tipping points already that we can't stop. But we know that one of the, like, the science is unanimous. We have to stop new fossil fuel projects and we have to phase out fossil fuels as fast as possible. And so if we don't do that, we can't minimise the damage. So I think all of us in our group have... Like, we're so well aware of what's happening. It's like you can't walk away from it once you know. You have to keep doing. You have a moral duty. And, and you know there's that old saying, if good people do nothing, then really bad things happen. So we remain resolute to continue to do whatever we can. That's fantastic. And, and is there anything you would call upon people who are listening to do? Definitely. Like, none of us are any different to anybody else. We're average people and we took a stand to try and do something to get our message to the people that needed to hear it the most. But often people feel like they can't, they can't do anything. So we all can do something if we just do a little bit. Like, we were, if, if everyone goes to see their parliamentarian and stands outside the office once a month, we'd have thousands and millions of people standing on the footpath with a sign that just says stop oil, stop gas. We could make a difference. Join a group, any group, get together with people power and, and just get out there and have your voice heard. Diane, thank you so much. For the record, can I just ask you um, your professional or, you know, if there's any other kind of credentials or other things you'd like to, to rec have on the record for this as, as like when I, when I introduce this properly? Yeah, I'm a psychologist. Um, I'm mostly retired. I still do some work in psychology and so I'm really aware of the mental health impacts of climate change and also I'm super, super worried about the impact on young people and their mental health. Like the data tells us that one in three young people one in three out of four young people have serious concerns about the future and that sense of a foreshortened life and so many young people are saying I can't have children into this world and, and I have anxiety about it so plus I know what's going to happen once we have these cascading um, climate events beginning to occur then it's just going to have a knock-on knock -on effect to all of our mental health and safety. Diane, thank you for everything you've done and thanks for speaking to Environmental as Anything. Thanks, Sean, and thanks for your interest and for, for doing this. Awesome. Renowned climate activist Violet Coco was present at the court in Brisbane on the day and spoke out against the injustice of the treatment of the Parliament 14. It's clear that the system is being punitive. They're, they're dragging up these old laws to keep these protesters questioning whether they will lose their freedom or not. It's a, process, a punitive process, so they're, they're punishing them through the process. At the end of the day, maybe these charges will be dropped, but in the meantime, they're being dragged through the courts, they're being taken away from their jobs and for their family and fearing for their freedom while, while the 
process is being done. So it's a punitive process and, and that is also a very big issue that we face as activists. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. We were just hearing the uh, report that I put together on the Brisbane XR uh, action outside the Brisbane Magistrates Court on Monday, uh, supporting the Parliament 14 in their actions in calling for an end to new coal and new gas in the Queensland Parliament almost a year ago. And uh, so they finally had their hearing. Unfortunately, it was not a final hearing. It was an adjournment and there's further uh, issues of law to be, to be uh, concerned about there. To discuss with us issues of law and activism is, uh, well, activism educator, and academic and writer, Dr Aidan Ricketts uh, from the Southern Cross University uh, Law School. Uh, and he will be well known to uh, locals here on the North Coast as one of the, uh, the leaders of the Bentley movement and uh, also uh, a, uh, a significant voice for uh, freedom of speech and, uh, and assembly here in Australia. Uh, Aidan, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. Good afternoon. Well, look, uh, great pleasure to have you with us. I was, uh, you did hear the uh, the report from Brisbane. Uh, it's only one of many uh, that are sort of coming up across the country. Uh, there was uh, in WA the, uh, the 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 stop the Burrup hub people being treated harshly. Uh, in ACT this week, they're looking at the uh, the Appia Five uh, facing charges for, uh, for for unreasonable uh, conduct outside the, uh, the the fossil fuel headquarters. There's uh, there's examples all around the country at the moment. How do you see the uh, the national uh, uh, landscape for uh, environmental activist protests and their legal consequences right now? Uh, well, it's anti-protest laws are definitely a growth industry and have been for uh, look at least fifteen years. Time gets away on you, but um, yeah, look, um, I mean. Historically, you get surges at times in things like anti-protest law when there's strong protest movements which are you know, resisted by vested interest. We saw it during the Vietnam War. Uh, and then in some states, we saw a thawing of those kinds of laws subsequently. Uh, and then we've seen a market uptick. And I'd say, um, without a doubt, the one factor that's really marked out the uptick in, uh, you know, the upsurge in anti-protest laws around Australia at state and Commonwealth level 
has been as protests have turned their attention onto climate change, mining and the fossil fuel industry. I mean, we've been having protests for a very long time, as you know, in the forests. And whilst that did lead to some, uh, you know, anti-protest laws in various places, Tasmania and New South Wales in particular, nothing on the scale or the, you know, the broadness uh, across the country as we've seen since the mining industry decided that protesters were a threat to them. Mm. Mm. It's um, it's uh, uh, the 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 big money end of town seems to dictate these uh, these these laws to the the government. It seems to be another example of state capture. We've got a, a huge problem with it in Australia. We've got something like one of the ninth most simplified economies on the planet, and we keep going that direction. We we sort of. Um, I sort of talk about our mining addiction, you know, a little bit, you know, in terms of an addiction where, you know, the only relief, well, you know, one of the most immediate forms of relief from an addiction is to go back into it. Um, hmm. And indeed, what we tend to see in Australia is an addiction, not not just to the, um, the money that comes from mining, which tends to be inflated and the job figures are massively inflated. The addiction tends to be to the building of mines, um, which... You can see the addictive nature of that in itself. If it's the building of them rather than the running of them that you're getting most of your employment and money from, it's it's a problem. But it's had the problem of simplifying our economy. You know, as you know, we've lost, you know, manufacturing and a lot of other sectors. And so there's this this vicious circle in which governments running on a short economic and political cycle feel themselves more and more under pressure to deliver to the only industry that's left standing in some ways. Um, and that's one of the big problems we see. I mean, the mining industry has been dominant in Australian politics across all the major political parties for at least 60 years. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, watching the struggles of the Whitlam government when they took on mining. Um, so it's not new, but and it's not necessarily hidden either. You know, one of the things about, you know, there's two types of corruption. There's illegal corruption and there's completely business as normal corruption, and mostly that's what we're looking at. Um, you know, the type of corruption where it's just not questioned that, um, you know, political parties and ministers and so on will entertain these corporate lobbyists, their donations and make decisions, you know, which are favourable to them. And, and then this idea, as I've indicated economically, where the concept of the national economic interest gets conflated with the interest of these industries and there's not long-term planning that says, well, you know, what we need to do is get off this addiction rather than continue to entrench it. Yes, and so yeah, you're calling it corruption. Uh, you know, you're not alone there. Obviously, uh, there's it, it has it's intended to have a chilling effect, though, isn't it, on freedom of speech and our civil liberties in general, our freedom of assembly, etc. Uh, but you know, there seems to be the potential for it to blow up in the faces of those who are engineering these uh, these these crackdowns in the laws. I mean, uh, Dr. Colette Harmson's uh, three months in the Tasmanian prison recently and being released to to plaudits from the community. Uh, this can end up inspiring people to take further action? Well, I mean, uh, yes, I think it can definitely create, you know, the you know, the spectacle of martyrs, which is never an easy path for anybody, uh, and, and I, I guess a slow path towards social change, but that's certainly right. I mean, um, you know, when you look at the way regimes respond to pressures for change, um, and I look at it, you know, from a... a, a sort of a complexity perspective, they either respond adaptively or maladaptively. And when they respond maladaptively, things like these these sort of stiffening, these clamp downs, these, you know, absurd penalties for offences, which, 
you know, are clearly absurd because if you relate them across to the penalties for other types of offences, you know, violence offences, domestic offences, offences against children, you know, there's no there's no sensible correlation in the uh, types of punishments that the parliaments are starting to legislate for these kinds of protest offences. So you're right. I mean, uh, you know. Where, where a system clamps down against the pressure for change, it does make itself more brittle uh, in the long term. But it, you know, it, it can be a long term thing. I mean, mm. you, you know, that's how totalitarianism really works. It's an extremist form of conservatism in a way that makes itself more resistive, but ultimately more brittle, and so tends towards, uh, you know, abrupt collapse like the Soviet Union rather than. Um, living on in its own nightmare like the British monarchy. <laughs> well, um, yes. So, you know, like we we see examples where, uh, you know, that, that pushback happens uh, within the system too, don't we, where, uh, you know, there, there is a, a fundamental tenet of uh, democratic systems is that there are checks and balances uh, and where, where overreach is uh, demonstrated by the executive, it's uh, left to other arms of the, uh, the legal system, including the judicial uh, system, to actually uh, to redress those. And we saw with, uh, with the case of MJ Johnson in, um, uh, here in Lismore, where the magistrate uh, decided that her actions were in accord with uh, community norms and standards and found her not guilty on those charges. Uh, I just thought it would be worth our while to discuss a little bit about, uh, you know, judicial independence and, uh, and, and the idea that some people have, uh, have, have given up on uh, pleading not guilty to their charges when, uh, when faced with these, uh, with, with these kinds of uh, situations. Do you, do you have an idea? It seems to be a bit of a trend that uh, people will, will, will ignore uh, the idea of pleading not guilty and then just that being advised to plead guilty to everything. Do you, do you have, uh, what do you think about that? Um, there's a couple of things to unpack there. I think getting back to basics with the idea of the role of the judiciary is useful. Um, what we're seeing primarily uh, is the judiciary uh, is, is uh, it's a conservative, definitely a conservative arm of our system, but conservative in the sense that it changes slowly and so where the legislature and executive are being reactionary in the way that they are the judiciary definitely is a handbrake and the principal way we're seeing that is the judiciary um, not being willing to implement the extreme penalties that are being attached to these types of offences so we saw that for example with Violet's case where the whilst the magistrate was prepared to sentence um, within the range the legislature was specifying, the district court um, wound that back. And thus far, thankfully, that, that is what we tend to see from the, um, the higher courts when these things go on appeal. Magistrates' courts can be a lot more um, unpredictable, um, but, you know, we're seeing a more... Con- because the appeal courts have that primary responsibility for sentencing and they do tend to have it in their heads understandably, when they're sentencing somebody for protesting, they can't help but know that, you know, a week ago they were sentencing somebody for domestic violence or interfering with children. Uh, in, incidentally, I, I took the time to look up the average uh, jail penalties for particular offences around the time when, when Violet was sentenced to 15 months, and the, the equivalent was major government or corporate deception, which I thought was rather ironic. <laughs> So you're going to get the same charge for telling the truth as you would be for create for for doing major deception. 
Well, that's what I thought. The very thing that had led to the climate problem, um, you know, if, if it was actually properly prosecuted, carried the same um, penalty as they were trying to give to the person who was whistleblowing it. Mm. Mm. And so, so what would, uh, you know, you, you, what do you think about this idea that, uh, that people are being advised uh, to just, just plead guilty? They're not even being, uh, when they're being trained as activists. Oh, look, I think that's, that's a very context-dependent thing, and hopefully it is context-dependent. Um, you know, I'm aware that at times people can get sort of invested in, you know, what we used to call holy NVA, um, you know, which is sort of a, you know, a theoretical version of uh, nonviolent action, which is very sort of steeped in ideals around civil disobedience. And from that perspective, um, you know, an argument is put that, you know, civil disobedience is about knowingly breaking the law and taking the consequences on the chin. Um, yeah, and I can see that argument in relation to clear-cut situations, perhaps, where you know you're breaking the law and you know that pleading guilty is only going to, um, you know, lead to more delays and more problems. But, like I say, I, I don't think we should ever adopt an ideological position that you should always plead guilty because there's many other situations which are far more uh, complicated than that. Obviously, the one you were just talking about with the Queensland Parliament's an old law that they've dusted off haven't used for a while, and so, you know, there can be, you know, major flaws in the way they prosecute, so why wouldn't you plead not guilty and put them to that test? That's what, you know, that's what courtrooms and defence lawyers are for. Uh, and as you know yourself, in a lot of our forestry campaigns over the years, uh, part of our uh, claim was that the logging was illegal, and so quite often um, charges for protesting, locking on, trespass and those sorts of things were ultimately dropped when the logging was found to be unlawful. So, you know, I think, yes, definitely, whilst, you know, people can have ideological ideas around um, civil disobedience, and, you know, virtuous civil disobedience, I think we need to have a context-driven and always a strategic-driven approach to whether we should or shouldn't be pleading guilty or not guilty in any given situation. Mm, yeah, I mean, if you plead guilty to a, a shopping list of uh, of charges that the cops have trumped up, then you really are just giving them a free run and handing the judicial independence over to the uh, to the police, aren't you? Well, that is a, that is a bigger issue. I mean, the our, our criminal justice system uh, is a long way along the line of transitioning from having been a prosecution and defence sort of uh, adversary system to being a very kind of uh, managerialist and administrative system these days. And part of that is this game in which the police do um, throw up a whole lot of charges and then engage in bargaining down those charges with the defence. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of push economically through particularly the lower court systems, like the magistrate courts, for prosecution and defence to get things worked out before they appear in court and to keep everything smooth. So um, you're quite right, uh, Quite often, that's just a uh, strategic mechanism by the prosecution to laundry list the charges, so you wouldn't want to be pleading guilty to all of them. And then, when you get into these highly politicised situations, um, of course, there can be the attempts to throw in, you know, bigger, stronger, worse charges uh, than the usual ones. Mm. So, um, you know, we see that where you, you know, you could just simply be charging for for trespass or um, obstruct. Uh, and you start turning into watch and be said or intimidation. Mm. Uh, and I think in those situations, it's very, very important that defendants and their legal teams resist that ramping up of charges to higher, you know, to higher levels. Mm. Mm. 
Well, okay, I, we probably have to uh, wrap it up soon, but I was just going to ask you uh, just to, 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 to do that. Um, uh, what do you think uh, we can be doing about the, the, the situation for these the, the, this trend towards uh, a, a toughening up of the anti-protest laws and the, and the, and the reduction of our, our civil liberties? Well, I mean, it's an all-points resistance, I guess. I mean, on, on one level, we need to keep pointing out that they are anti-protest laws. There's still a lot of, you know, sensitivity. You always see the politicians denying that that's what they really are, so that's kind of admission by denial. Uh, so we need to keep the pressure on. We need to keep at least tabulating them and showing, because they do grow um, cumulatively over time, so we need to keep an idea on that. And I suppose that's a job for sort of lawyers and academics, um, for the public, obviously, we need to continue um, pressuring, but certainly keep um, you know breaking those laws conscientiously as well, like you say, and um, you know making those strategic decisions how to respond to them in court, um, particularly you know with the support of um, you know community legal centres and pro bono lawyers and so on, uh, and then ultimately, as we foreshadowed right in the beginning. Um, it, it may well, as it has done in many of the great movements of the past, require some people to really um, take on a, an unnecessarily large personal burden of, of martyrdom in some cases because uh, the spectacle of peaceful protesters being jailed uh, is one that the Australian public doesn't seem to accept. So, um, you know, some people who have that sort of courage and all power to them um, may find themselves in situations where they're the where they're the one that's, you know, really reflecting that back to the public. Hopefully yeah. we don't have to add too much of that, but that's that's sort of what I was indicating with this idea that, you know, they keep clamping down, clamping down, thinking that's going to win, but there comes a point where there's a, a topple over um, where they engage in overreach and become more brittle. Rightio. Well, that's uh, strength strength to our, uh, our, our our collective arm then, and uh, and carry on regardless. <laughs> Damn the torpedoes! Well, it's amazing to see you know people's determination to do that. Um, you know, you mentioned Barapard and Violet, and uh, you know, and, and all the protesters. It is amazing to see the you know the amount of people who are prepared to risk that jail time and do those things. So, you know. And that, I think that really does attract a lot of support um, because people can see the, you know, the real strength of their conviction. Mm. So uh, all power to them. Well, uh, and more power to you too, sir. Thank you very much for joining us today to cast some light on those issues here on Environmental as Anything. Thanks very much. All Talk. the best with it. Okay. That was uh, Aidan Ricketts. He's um, a law lecturer at uh, Southern Cross University, uh, a professor, a doctor of, of uh, uh, no, no less, a pair with uh, his uh, activist, educator, academic, and writer. Uh, he wrote the activist handbook uh, quite a few years ago and has written uh, quite a lot on anti-protest laws. So there's a there's a cleverly uh, a titled uh, lockup. Uh, your nanas, the anti-protest laws, lock up your nanas as one of the uh, uh, the, the journal articles that he uh, he's written on this topic. Anyway, and just uh, yeah, uh, following up on the uh, the the actions happening in Brisbane on Monday, and then uh, 
you know, presaging the ones that are happening next week with the Appia Five appearing in court on Tuesday in the ACT. It's just an ongoing list of uh, courageous people being uh, dragged before the courts for telling the truth and demanding that our governments take action uh, to effectively uh, address the climate emergency. So uh, thanks to Aidan Ricketts for that. Next on Environmental as Anything, we'll be uh, going to speak to Sue Higginson, MLC, uh, about the New South Wales government and it's uh, the fact that the current ALP uh, government, the new ALP government in New South Wales, uh, has uh, has weaker carbon uh, and climate targets than the former uh, Liberal National Party government did. So... Um, Looking forward to talking to Sue very soon. What's also a great relief is to have Sue Higginson, MLC, with us today. Uh, Sue, of course, has been a, uh, a, a defender of the uh, of our of our environment for a long time as the the chief solicitor of the EDO back in the day and uh, defending many uh, uh, protesters and and, uh, protectors out there uh, for forests and other uh, climate-related issues. She's now in the parliament uh, for us and for the climate, and she's con- and the, the the Greens are saying that Labor is taking us backwards on climate. We're in a climate emergency, threatens the safety of the environment, people, health, water, and the ability to grow food and air we breathe. The stakes couldn't be higher, and yet Labor's net zero by 2050 target locks in two degrees of global heating and cause more extreme and frequent fires, floods, and droughts. But I'll let Sue speak for herself, as she does so well, uh, about this uh, this. Uh, the the climate change net zero future bill and the inquiry uh, which she's part of in the parliament uh, as we speak. Sue, thank you for joining Environmental as Anything yet again. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. It's always a pleasure. Indeed. Look, uh, you're super excited about this inquiry into the uh, climate change net zero future bill. As I was saying off air, it seems, uh, you know, worrying that it might uh, lead to uh, a net to, to, to zero future for us all. What, what do you think? Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting, actually, because um, after the first day of hearing into the inquiry, I was looking at the title of the bill again. It was just sitting in front of me, and I was feeling a little bit grim after feeling super excited, and I just kept looking at the zero future part, zero future, <laughs> zero future, and went, no, no, we won't let this happen. So, look, the reality is the climate change minister, Penny Sharp, dropped onto the table of parliament in the last sitting a couple of weeks ago. Um, Her, as she said, um, her government's pre-election commitment and promise to introduce um, legislation that sets in emissions reduction targets in legislation for New South Wales. And um, those, and she's done that, and those, she's dropped that bill and... At the moment, the bill as it's framed literally sets a um, 50% reduction on 2005 emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Um, and and also the bill um, intends to set up what's called the uh, Net Zero Climate Commission, 
um, and that's a body, a new sort of independent body. That gets appointed by the minister, but a, an independent body that will advise the government on zero, on um, emissions reduction. So, you know, in good faith, we got quite excited and went, fantastic, we're going to have some climate legislation. That bill, when she dropped it in Parliament, was referred to a committee um, and to have a short inquiry. I'm the chair of that inquiry, which is the Portfolio Committee on Climate Change in the Legislative Council. So we've commenced our inquiry. We've received a um, an excellent suite of submissions from some really incredibly well-qualified climate experts and institutions from around the country. Um, um, and then we had our first day of hearing on Friday. Um, we heard from Professor Andy Pittman. He's the Director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes through the University of New South Wales. Uh, we heard from the Property Council of Australia. I'll tell you about that one. That was really interesting. Oh, yeah. And we had some fantastic legal experts before it. So the... Um, National Environmental Law Association, the Environmental Planning and Law Association, as well as EDO um, and the Law Society of New South Wales. We, so we got we got some really good science. We got oh, we had Tim Buckley for the Director yeah. of Climate Energy Finance, um, and then we had a bunch of civil society, climate organisations. We had doctors for the environment. So that was kind of first day of hearing, and so we got the science. Uh, that was pretty grim in so far as Andy Pittman thinks that actually tr getting to 1.5, that boat has sailed. We, we won't be able to stay at 1.5. Mm. He says the trip now really has to be staying below two um, mm. and, and no more than two. Um, and he says that on good science. Um, the um, But then... so. So where the sort of controversy of all of this comes into is, as I was looking at the bill when it was first dropped, I looked and thought, hang on, why have we got a 2030 target, a 2050 target, when New South Wales, whilst not um, clearly legislated in parent legislation, we currently have regulation, which is still law, we have regulation in New South Wales right now that says we have a 20, 30, 50% reduction in emissions targets. We have a net zero by 2050 target. But really importantly, we have a 70% emissions reduction by 2035 target. Mm. That's the current situation in New South Wales left by... Uh, actually, Matt Keane, the former energy minister, who, no matter what we think of, um, you know, politics and whatever side of politics, Matt Keane, in no uncertain terms, as an individual member of parliament, was a climate and energy expert. He absolutely got his hands filthy in the entire topic. Um, and he looked at all of the programs that we have in New South Wales and the downward pressure on emission emitting um, sectors. And he actually said the programs that they've introduced through waste and various programs, energy, the renewable energy zones that he set in place, he says we are actually, if we carry on with the downward pressure, we are on track. As hard as it will be, we can get to... 
70% emissions reduction by 2035. Mm. So when I started looking at Labor's new bill, I literally could not believe and was quite flabbergasted at why we don't have an interim target and why we've only got those bookend targets and that when you look at what that means in terms of implementing it, it's actually hellishly dangerous Mm. because the idea of getting to 50% is drastically important. We know that. Mm. But 50% by 2030, um, as I say, drastically important. But if that is our target and our next target is not until 2050, that literally means we can carry on doing exactly what we're doing now, including extending the life of coal-fired power plants, Mm. including continuing to dig coal, including to have some of those very difficult to uh, reduce high-emitting industries and sectors, carry on like there's no tomorrow until 2049. Yes. Um, And that's 50% of the emissions sector. So it's effectively, it sounds a lot like the uh, the ALP, uh, you know, sort of a fudging it and backsliding to some extent. I've got some audio here from you grilling the Premier, um, Premier Minns, during uh, estimates uh, on uh, on Wednesday, was it? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, so I just play that. It's a, it's a short clip that I think we could play and maybe comment on afterwards. I ask you this, Premier, what do you say to the fact that your climate targets right now are less ambitious than the current targets that were set by the coalition government? I don't think they had a target. They did. It's in legislation. It's written there right now in the Energies and Administration Utilities Regulation. No, I'm pretty sure 2035, 70% reduction. You're not proposing anything near that No, I remember prosecuting this in the election campaign, actually, and saying to the previous energy minister, did you... What's your target in relation to net zero or 50% reductions by a particular date? And he said, well, we're committed to that. And then I remember questioning the then leader of the National Party uh, about exactly the same question. He said, there are no targets. So it's, it's I think you're probably off Premier. track. So uh, Premier Minns perhaps in a bit of denial about uh, the climate targets. Absolutely. I uh, Yeah, I, I mean, I walked out of that really shocked. I was literally looking at the regulation in front of me at the time it was it's written in black and white it's there um you know whatever games he and the leader of the nationals played in the lead up to the election is you know it's just not um it's not fair income politics right here right now when we're looking at setting the state's ambition for our for our survival like it's actually it it, it was yeah i mean it was quite shocking to me that he genuinely doesn't know what the political and legal landscape right now is and where his government's ambition sits within that because it it is labor is actually taking us backwards you you can say i i understand that there is a particular lens and it's a bit of a glossy politics lens where you can say um But we're going to legislate these targets as in put them in the primary legislation, the enabling um, law. Hmm. But the reality is a regulation is made under the parent law. It is law. It is black and white. Hmm. For example, if you, you know, most of, a lot of our criminal penalties are in regulation. A lot of law is sitting in regulation. Whether we like it or not, it's in there and we have to abide by it. So right now, 
Um, we do have a 2035 target of reducing emissions by 70%. At the moment, Labor's bill that they are proposing to um, pass through Parliament doesn't contain that. I am looking at the genuine merits of what uh, Labor is proposing right now. I don't think legislated targets that don't improve on the current regulated targets is much of a political gain for New South Wales. I, I, no. I feel like I'm with kind of the, the, the workers on this space right now, as in all of us on the climate front space that are working for climate justice. And that is, we, we, want, we want real targets and action. We don't actually, at this point, care too much where they are. It's about working towards those targets. Yes, I would prefer them in legislation, but not if they're not as ambitious as the ones we've got and that we're working for. Mm, mm. So, uh, yeah, is there going to be an opportunity for amending uh, this to, to, to bring it up to speed, to make it, at least, you know, make it more, more effective than the, uh, than the LNP's uh, targets? Look, very much so. I, I, I believe there is genuine intent, uh, genuine, sorry, opportunity and um, openness on part of the government. It is a bit tricky, though, what I'm realising with this Labor government um, now they're sort of nine months on, is that they are just very, very keen to um, make their entire political agenda only what they went to the election with. Um, you know, we went with this, therefore that's all we're going to do. Now, the reality is the climate science um, is not static. We're learning each and every day that, um, unfortunately, a lot of the models and the predictions that we were working towards over the past decade and prior to that um, were actually a bit slow in so far as understanding the impacts um, and how fast those impacts, we are walking into those impacts and how much more severe those impacts actually are. They're here now and we're experiencing them. So the idea of saying, oh, our target that we set uh, two years ago in the lead up to the election um, and getting that through the Labor conference, that's what we need to do. It's, it, I think what people want is they want climate laws based on the science and our survival right now. I think... So our job, of course, as the, uh, as the cross bench and, of course, working with the opposition is actually to try to push Labor to go further and faster on what their ambition is to at least get it commensurate to what the coalition and the existing um, targets are in New South Wales. Mm. And the good thing is, so far, after a whole day of evidence in the hearing, the inquiry, we did hear um, that it is possible to get to uh, 70% reduction on 2005 levels by 2035. In fact, there was an end that the science is telling us we need to do that. Mm. Um, the, one of the other things that was made quite clear by the legal experts before us was that actually the climate bill in and of itself has no actual mechanism to reduce emissions, that what it is is a bill that will just set targets, provide advice. So there was some fantastic evidence about how we could improve this bill to actually impose duties on decision-makers right now that are approving projects that are high-emitting or, or continuing to increase emissions rather than reduce emissions and how we can actually implement through law 
and a, a good climate ambition. So we've heard some very good um, evidence. There was also, because the bill, it says... Um, its objective is to in, um, implement the Paris Agreement, that if we set those two targets, and particularly the net zero by 2050 without that interim target, we're not actually consistent with our obligations under the um, Paris Agreement. So there's some legal conundrum there that I believe if we can put that case clearly to Labor, I do expect Labor to be genuinely open-minded to good legal argument, as well as to good science argument, as well as to uh, practical implementation of ambition. So well, that's my goal. Good. I would have thought that uh, practical implementation of the ambition uh, component would have been uh, uh, very contingent, given that they are a minority government in a hung parliament uh, situation and uh, that the crossbench has made very strong commitments on uh, on climate. Uh, do you think the crossbench will uh, hold them to account on those commitments? Yeah, look, I do think so. You know, my intention, and I'm very open about um, the way I work in the parliament, I'm there for, for um, that particular purpose, um, to get better outcomes uh, for the environment. Um, and once this inquiry is finished in terms of the hearing of the evidence, I will brief all of the crossbench members about what we've heard about this bill. I'm, I feel very privileged that I am in this position and that um, as well as very burdened with the, hmm. with the weight of the evidence that's come before us. But I feel that because I am in that position, it is incumbent on me to actually go to the crossbench members in the lower house as well as my colleagues in the upper house um, I will organise a briefing session. I will present them with all of the material. Of course, there will be a report generated from the inquiry, but I feel that I will also give them a personal briefing as to what... Because some of it is quite complicated, you mm. know? It's, it's, it's some, the devil really is in the detail, um, and, and as is the ambition and the success of this. So I will brief them. I know that some of those lower house independents were absolutely voted in on the um, the intent of getting climate action. And the reality is at the moment, yes, net zero by 2050 is a reasonable ambition on part of everyone, but it really, that 2050 and the, the, um, uh, the 2040 to 2050, we really, really should have already done the work by then. And the science... The reality is the best of the science is telling us we need to be there by 2045 at the latest. That's what... And, and the, the other compelling evidence that we did here is that actually economies like ours in New South Wales, we are actually best placed to make this transition and do it this rapidly. And that front-loading the ambition of the emissions reduction is what sophisticated economies like ours can do and therefore we should do. Mm. So it's trying to impart that onto the, um, the, our political, my political colleagues and saying we need to raise the stakes of ambition here because the stakes for our survival couldn't be higher. 
All right. Well, good luck with that. We'll be uh, we'll be paying attention uh, closely. I'll be, as I said off air, I'll be looking forward to getting some uh, some of the audio from the uh, the the inquiry and some of those expert witnesses sound like they're well worth giving a listen to. And yeah. I have to get you back to give us the briefing once you've uh, you've done that with the crossbenchers. Give us uh, the wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. And look, on Monday um, we've got former chief scientist Penny Sackett now. She's, um, you know, she's an incredibly, uh, you know, she has deep dived into climate science and actually looking at sort of attribution science. So really looking at where emissions are generated and the impacts that they will contribute to, which is there's a real kind of science coming online. And she's very much at the forefront of that. I've seen her present evidence in litigation proceedings and She's very compelling and across so much. So we've got a real beneficial opportunity having her before the inquiry. So that will happen on Monday. So I'd love to be able to come back and tell you the second part of the, um, the hearing stories. Fantastic. We'd love to have you back next week for that. I'll be there. Thanks, Sue. Well, good luck with it. Keep up the good work and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep posted. Thank you. That is, of course, Sue Higginson, MLC, a member of the Legislative Council. That's the New South Wales Upper House. And uh, she is the uh, chair of that committee, which is looking into the uh, uh, net zero uh, uh, future bill that that the ALP is uh, trying to get through the parliament. And she's drawn the conclusion that they're actually backsliding on the commitments from the previous government and, uh, and weakening our targets rather than strengthening them. So, uh, yes, we'll be very interested to hear more uh, from that process, from that inquiry in, uh, in New South Wales. All right. Well, moving on with environmental as anything. We're looking forward to hearing uh, the, uh, the COCO report. We're going to get the uh, frontline action report from none other than Violet COCO herself. She'll be giving us a wrap-up on what's been going on uh, on those front lines and what's happening next. So we'll be talking then a bit more about uh, the People's Blockade, which is coming up at the end of November, but uh, there'll also be uh, be more immediate uh, actions than that, I'm sure. So stay with me here on Environmental As Anything for heaps more to come. Here comes the rain again from the Eurythmics back in 1984. Well, it doesn't seem to get old, that track. So, uh, And, of course, it has been raining where I am, which is a, a, a wonderful thing to be celebrating uh, after a an extremely flammable uh, few weeks, looking like we were heading into a, a, a widespread uh, infernos, potentially. And, uh, of course, yeah, a bit of relief there from that immediate stress in the midst of this climate emergency that we're all surviving. 
So, somebody who is doing more than surviving the climate emergency but is resisting it uh, and uh, making uh, making it uh, the focus of uh, her life uh, is uh, Violet Coco. I refer to her sometimes as our very own Violet Coco because she has been living here in Lismore for quite a while, making it her home. But uh, she travels the country doing good wherever she goes. I saw her last up in Brisbane during the uh, Parliament 14 uh, actions there mm. on Monday. But uh, she's joining us now live to tell us what else she's been up to. Violet, thanks for joining Environmental as Anything again today. Oh, thank you for having me so much. And it was so good to see you up in Brisbane, um, Yanjin. And um, yeah, I do. I still, I'm missing Lismore. I'm coming back to Lisbon for my birthday. So that it's still my home, even if I don't have a room there. <laughs> Indeed. So yeah, it's good to be connected in. Um, how you been? How you how you been doing since the Brisbane rally? Oh me, yeah, good. Uh, it was a busy day. It was a busy week for me. Uh, lots of family commitments, and uh, yeah, I was in the Rising Tide training uh, a couple of days oh. before that up there in Brisbane, and then you know getting back into production mode when I came back with all of the uh, the material that I've collected and putting together that piece. So yeah, it, it was pretty exciting. I uh, was was really uh, was uplifted by uh, by being around all those uh, wonderful people there. All that wonderful music. I love the songs. Wasn't that, it? Yeah. yeah. We had so many good performers there, including a local Jara, who's just an incredible musician. And I always appreciate their poetry as well. And I think that was one of the real wins about that particular day was how much fun we had. Mm. Because it's so clear that, um, you know, the police sort of use these court dates and use court and use bail to scare us, to repress us as activists, to make it difficult, to make us not want to do what we're doing. And, and when we can really turn that around and just have a really good time with each other and make a lot of music and, um, and celebrate the courage of each other, it, it just completely flips it on the head of the, of, for, um, for the state and the police. Yep. And, and we end up turning it into a win. And, and that's what happened that day. And, has to yeah, be, really has good. to be a festival of democracy whenever we go out, I, I reckon. <laughs> I love that, a festival of democracy. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm getting ready for a, a big day tomorrow. We're on the streets of um, Gadigal Country, Sydney, um, as zombies. Wow. Uh, tomorrow, yeah, big zombie horde is going to take over the city. Um, tomorrow at Town Hall we're meeting. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to be gathering and doing it. We've got a dance. There's a dance that people have performed very <laughs> easy. The thriller? Dance. Is that it? Is it the thriller dance? It is. It is. There is one thriller dance, yes. And there's also, we're also going to be dancing to the Monster Mash <laughs> and all other kinds of spooky themed you know, and, and it's all part of this campaign called No Joy on a Dead Planet, yeah. which um, which is which is really acknowledging that, uh, you know, we do face a lot of climate grief when we acknowledge what's going on. And, and as a community, we, we sort of are standing strong in our resilience to to be joyful with each other and to, to show joy even in our resistance. And so, um, yeah, I'm really a part, happy to, and, and proud to be a part of that project. And mm. I think it's going to be a really, really beautiful day. And, and it bumps straight onto a um, Palestine rally, peace rally. And so I'm really in- excited to be a part of both of those rallies tomorrow. And, um, and yeah, to 
sing for climate and sing for peace. Yep, singing and dancing and uh, performance and creativity, they're uh, the hallmark of uh, successful and uh, vibrant movements. So, yeah, it's good to that's hear right. you're enjoying yourself doing that. Actually, uh, well, that's where you're planning to enjoy yourself. I should say, as often is the case with you, Violet, you have leapt into the future and uh, we've, oh. we've left somewhat of the past behind. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you've been up to uh, before we move oh. too far into the future. <laughs> well, talk about what I've done. That's old news. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but it wasn't me. You can't prove a thing, she says. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't me. wasn't me. Um, no comment, officer. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, well, what have I done? I guess like, the thing that uh, since we last talked. I've heard, that you were, I've heard that you were tree-sitting recently. Oh, yes, yes. I, I did Tell my first tree sit down in La Truita, which is uh, also known as Tasmania. And, um, oh, yeah, it was really powerful, actually, supported by the Bob Brown Foundation. And um, they've got it really down to a fine art down there. They've got these tree sit tents that just unpack from mm. a backpack. Mm. Um, it's ha- handmade in there. In, they've got like a, a, a tree sit making station in their office <laughs> uh, and they just pop out these tree sits and then um, I, I am actually very scared of heights right. and um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to do these climbing things because it's sort of a part of activism <sighs> to get yourself into positions that are difficult to get out of mm. and that includes being up high but uh, quite quite to the um, detriment of my knee strength and <laughs> stability sometimes, <laughs> but I did manage to climb up. So I climbed up uh, I climbed up a 10-metre tree sit, um, but it was on a hill, so it felt more like 20 metres because wow. where the road was was like sort of a bit far down. And, um, and I spent the night, actually, you know, you kind of go in there in the early hours of the morning, and I, I spent most of the night sleeping in the sit up in the tree, you know, with my back up against the trunk of the tree. And I, I have to tell you, that was one of the most incredible ways to sleep up mm. there and, mm. and, you know, with the tree and with the, the birds and mm. hearing them come in in the morning. And um, and then, you know, eventually the, the loggers come in and, and the beautiful crew down the bottom, they de-escalate the situation to keep it safe for me while I'm dangling 10 metres in the air. <laughs> and... Um, and then they go away, and then you have this moment where there's just the sun rises, and the rest of the birds wake up, and the tr- and the forest sounds like a forest should sound, rather than sounding like the death machine. I, I, I know that you've heard the sound of loggers, and all too often, it's it's a really awful thing, and and to to sit there up in the tree and and know that everything is chirping happily, and everything gets to live because you're hanging in that space is um it's really really an incredible thing so if anybody's mm. got time and wants to head down to la truita tasmania and do a tree sit or in fact in any of the other blockades i know that there's several blockades around new south wales even um that would be happy to help show you how to take such a resistance it's not that hard to climb a uh, climb you know many people do it takes a bit of strength but not too much. If you've got a little bit of fitness behind you, I'm, I've had my spine reconstructed, so I'm definitely not the fittest person in the world or the most able person, but I, I managed to get up there. So, 
Yeah, I, I definitely recommend people give that one a go. It's it's quite an incredible experience. Well, you've sold so, me. Yeah, I've, I haven't done a tree <laughs> sit for, uh, well, since about 1992, I think it was. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I did spend a week up at... I was two at, years at, old when you were getting on your... Yeah, well, <laughs> don't need to rub it in. I mean, no, I spent a week, I spent a week living amongst the possums in uh, Coolangubra and it was, wow. as you said, one of the most, uh, you know, it's certainly been memorable. It's certainly one of those memories that I've taken through the rest of my life and, and yeah. treasured because, uh, yeah, like you don't uh, have that kind of relationship with uh, the natural world until you've spent time actually in the canopy of the trees. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it certainly changed the way I saw the world and myself. So, yeah, I'd recommend anybody have a go. And, uh, you know, I've been working on my fitness. I reckon I might be able to get a, if I got a proper training, I reckon I could get up a tree. Even I at think my, you could too, you know, yeah. Considerable years. <laughs> I've, I've seen you, you know, lifting things and moving stuff around during action periods. You, you, you could do it. Yeah. I and if not, I know that there's someone down in Tasmania that recently got hauled up a tree. Mm. So, like, you know, they winched, they just sort of had the whole ground crew pull them up. Mm. So yeah. there's options for everybody. Mm. If anybody's willing to be courageous, of course, you can always go a classical arm lock or a neck lock onto a piece of machinery. But, mm. but being up in the trees is a very, very special thing. So mm. highly recommended, yeah. And the other thing I've heard you've been doing, which is I thought un slightly uncharacteristic, I heard you went to the footy. You're at the grand final. <laughs> Who were you go after? Were you at Pies? pies. <laughs> go the Pies. Go the Pies. I learned the, the Pies theme song. Oh, um, I did. I did something. Oh, now if I can remember it, something about. Uh, no, nah, it's gone. Uh, nah, no, I can't. Right, no. Not in the pressure of the moment. No. <laughs> oh, my God. <gosh. laughs> so maybe it'll come to me right at the end. <laughs> or I can send you a recording for the next show. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we went along. Um, there was a little parade going on and some awesome rebels had come up, Extinction Rebellion um, rebels had uh, come up with a plan to sit um, in the parade and uh, and just talk about the fact that or a sign that um, you, know, you can't play footy in 50 degree heat, you know, and, mm. and we are... Moving into an El Nino, as you say, you know, you started this segment talking about how dry things have been and, mm. and the heat of, that we're coming into and um, just trying to reach that other part of society that maybe isn't so conscious of the, the disruption that the climate breakdown causes. Of course, you and I are worried about the habitability and livability of our planet with food and water, but I'm hoping that if they realise they won't be able to play football, mm. that that will bring them on board too. Mm. So mm. <laughs> that was that action. I yeah. was just a de-escalator, so I, I had a pretty... Um, pretty easy role of just getting in and out and just being a bit of a blocker of the security so they while well, the people glued in, glued onto the the ground uh, so that was fun yeah, good, good one yeah we should probably yeah. uh, blockade some beer trucks that'll get people see, taking seriously or coffee i think if, it's, if it, people people start thinking their coffee supplies interrupted there'll be a problem you know that is a good – I was thinking in Melbourne and Nam especially mm. if mm. you could convince the coffee – the baristas to go on strike, mm. this revolution would be sorted. Indeed, indeed. There'd be a lot of irritable people <laughs> in the streets, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Where is our coffee? Oh. I think that sometimes someone while I was in Tasmania, not to, to divert too much, but it is pretty interesting. Someone while I was in Tasmania said to me that um, that you know if I was if I didn't get out of uh, prison from blocking the Harbour Bridge, that they were ready to block a bridge in Tasmania to in you know defence of me sort of being wrongfully incarcerated for my activism mm. and. Um, 
And I thought that to myself, I mean, that's very interesting that someone would be prepared to block a bridge out of the, me not getting out of prison, but not for the collapse of our society mm, and mm. death of our livable world. So it's interesting the things that motivate people, it you is. know? Human Coffee, beings were, beer. We're, yeah, we're strange <laughs> little monkeys with iPhones, as a good friend of mine says. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Entertaining ourselves to death. Yeah, that's right. That's what one of my friends anyway. anyway, yeah. So, so, uh, well, can we move to what's happening next? Coming up, I coming like, up. You've I got like what's coming up. Sea forces yeah. you've got on your list. Uh, what's that? Sea forces. So sea forces, people might have heard of land forces, which is a festival of the military, land military. They all get together and show off all their murder machines. Um, and uh, and so there's also a sea forces where the navy get together and show off their murder machines, right. and that's actually happening in Gadigal Country, um, Sydney, uh, between the fourth and ninth of November, and uh, people can find out how to be involved in that by going and uh, engaging with the Wage Peace mm-hmm. crew. So if you just look on social media for Wage Peace. You'll get all the information that you need. It's the 4th to the 9th of November, Sea Forces in Gadigal Country. I think it's really important right now that we're sending a strong message about peace and and the need for peace, obviously, with what's happening in the Middle East. But, you know, climate breakdown does increase the risk for war. And um, and so, yeah, it's a really, really important time to be engaging in that messaging. So wage peace okay. is a uh, good wage one peace. I think we'll get Mim in uh, next week, she, uh, but, uh, but it sounds like that's actually on next week, so we, we're, um, that's happening. But we've also got okay. um, uh, the uh, Canberra Rally for Assange and uh, also for yes. David McBride. Both I've had uh, John Shipton and David McBride on the show recently. Great. So yes. you've got a, a Canberra Rally. When's that? We better be quick because uh, we've got seven minutes to five we're literally we have blown it all by laughing it up too much okay we've been having too much fun all right so the festival of justice for whistleblowers and WikiLeaks is on sunday the 12th at 1 p.m in glebe park Mm. and there's also one the next day at the supreme court um where david's actually facing court that day at 8 a.m on the 13th Mm -hmm. so i'll be in canberra for both those days and i'm looking forward to supporting the uh those whistleblowers obviously we need people who tell the truth yep well maybe we'll get somebody in in time to talk us through that before next week's show that would be good i would love that yeah so we'll do that and um uh rising tide rising tide uh, and the cop out and then december rebellion that's it. So we've got Rising Tide, which is blocking the Newcastle coal port from the 24th to the 26th. Um, it's going to be a really fun day. It's going to be a who's who of activism. Everybody that I know that's a cool activist is turning up. Yeah. So um, so turn up. Um, go and register on their website, Rising Tide. Um, it's a paddle out. So we're paddling out. We're blocking the port. It's, it's expected to be non-arrestable. As long as there's enough of us there to actually create the line, yep. then, and then it'll be an easy, fun day. There's a stage. There's going to be some cool musicians. It'll be great. And then Cop Out is straight after that. Keep going down into Gadget. Country, Sydney, which is the 30th to the 3rd of November, uh, December. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, that crew, um, they actually don't even have their events or media out yet. 
Um, look for that in the next few days. But if you are in Gadigal country and you want to join them this Sunday, the 5th at Addison Road, there'll be banner painting. So go and check that out. But obviously it's a whole festival against um, or to shed a light on how much the COP has failed us. Mm. Do you know that more emissions have been released since the first COP than in the 17 years before it? Mm. And and so, fossil fuel subsidies are, are, are doubling uh, and, and, you know, that's, it, things are actually obviously just getting worse. So, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. should be uh, making sure we don't let them cop out. Um, and then yeah. the December Rebellion. I mean, there's oh. going to be the great gecko gathering down in Victoria, which I'm heading to after that. And yeah. then uh, there's the December Rebellion in uh, in Narn, isn't it? In Narn, which is the um, 4th to the... 10th of November, uh, December, sorry, I want to say. And mm-hmm. that's my personal favourite. That's my community. Everyone knows I'm from Extinction Rebellion, um, Westside, which is in Nam And, uh, yeah, and obviously the three demands of Extinction Rebellion just make the most sense to me in terms of a strategically moving forward, citizens' assemblies, fixing democracy, zeroing out admissions as soon as possible, and obviously that telling the truth that we are talking about earlier. And and I've done so many of these rebellions with the, um, with the Nam crew and... You know, they're just an amazing bunch of really incredible, fun people. You never know what's going to happen when you spend a week on the streets with them. So come on down. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm going to be there. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, we'll bring, bring along as many of us as we can, hey, and um, we'll see you there and see you I'll up be here there. before that anyway. And perhaps we'll get you back on the show to give us an update soon, next week or yeah. the week whenever you can. I'd love that. Anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much, Violet. You've uh, really wrapped up the show in style. (laughs) Thanks, Sean. Thanks so much for everything you do, and and thanks to everyone who's listening. Yep, yep. Good on you. Have a great time. We'll talk soon, hey? Talk soon. Okay. That was, of course, uh, Violet Coco, our very own Violet Coco, as I like to say. And uh, she's uh, she's out there. She's down in Gadigal country now. She's doing the the business, keeping the resistance on track, and... uh, but that is the end for us today here on Environmental As Anything. Please, uh, you know, do tune in. Uh, check out our Facebook page and like it and share it. Uh, check out our podcast. Uh, go on, uh, go right now and and uh, look in your favourite search engine uh, to, uh, to to Google or wherever it might be and uh, check out Environmental As Anything podcast and you will find a, a range of high-quality interviews there that you can not just listen to but also subscribe to and share. So please do that and uh, until we meet again, uh, please be kind to yourself, be gentle with each other and remember... We are all in this together.